This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Native or tribal sovereignty refers to the right of American Indians and Alaska Natives to govern themselves. In some definitions, native or tribal sovereignty is an inherent right, whether the tribe is federally recognized or not. But what does native sovereignty mean to indigenous peoples, non-indigenous peoples, governments, organizations, and beyond? Greg Castro, cultural director for the Association of Ramaytush Ohlone, has worked on preserving his indigenous heritage for three decades as a writer-activist and by educating the broader world about the Ramaytush Ohlone, the indigenous people of the land now called San Francisco. In this episode, Greg is joined by Lazuli Mello, licensed marriage and family therapist and core faculty in the Community Mental Health Program at CIS, for an illuminating conversation exploring the complexities of Native sovereignty from his perspective as a member and advocate for multiple California tribes. This episode was recorded during a live online event on September 22nd, 2022. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Uh, greetings to everybody. Uh, thank you for coming tonight. And um, I'm Greg. And I'm going to start off in the way my elders uh, taught me, just as we say it in English, to start off things in a good way. And we're going to do this with a song. And uh, I'm going to do the song in a prayer, and then I'll give you a brief telling of what that all means. Ara Pachitiahuan, Wasia him. 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 Ara Pachitiahuan. Creator, look after us and guide us on our work today. The song is a song that I had to borrow from my Rumson Ohlone relatives uh, because the Ramatrish culture has been nearly eradicated. And we only have a very few words in a word list that have survived. And so we're going to be probably talking about that tonight. The short prayer I gave you was written in Salinan, which is my father's people. And there's more information about that. But that language, like all California native languages, are all in a state of, of repair, of survival, uh, of threatened extinction, but also revival and trying to move from uh, survivance to thrivance, as I call it. So um, I share that uh, and in the hope that we're going to have a great conversation. The one we had last week with, uh, with you, Lizzie, was great. So I hand it off to you. Take it away. Lead us wherever we're going to go. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. What an honor to be here with you. Um, I feel both the, the grief and the joy in your song and in your presence. So thank you for starting us off with that. So to start, I think I want to start at the very beginning. Right? What does it mean to you to be a Native man? Right? How did you come into your subjectivity as a Native person? What's been your journey to 
to that, right? You talk about like all of this erasure, there's so many, so much colonial violence, just there's so much that's happening, right? So yeah. yeah. How, do, how, how did we get here? How did Greg, how is Greg Greg? How did you become you? Oh my God. And and the way you put it this time, which is a little bit different than our previous conversation, the subjectivity, right? That, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, and it is subjective to us, I think in colonial modern day society, and I work in technical field, and so we're not allowed to be subjective. We're not allowed to have an opinion or feelings. We have to be objective, logical, uh, strategic, uh, bereft of, of emotion and attachment. Um, and that's not possible for Native people if you know who you are. And uh, I was fortunate of the three lineages I have. I've always known that I was Selenin, which are my dad's people. Um, he grew up in the homeland and raised by grandparents on the homeland when he was very young um, and later moved to San Jose, where our family uh, became established and, and I grew up and still live. And my mother's people are Rumson, uh, Ohlone, which is from the Bay area. And uh, we've known both of those lineages all our life, uh, but not of the culture, because uh, as we'll talk about a lot tonight, um, the colonization process was highly successful, way too successful in many cases. Um, and so a lot of the knowledge was put to sleep or hidden. Um, we, we sometimes use that word lost or extinct, uh, but, but really it was hidden. And we've managed to bring it back in a lot of cases. But depending on what survived uh, is what the constitutes our you know, culture that we can bring back. And so um, that knowledge by itself, and and along with that, my dad, as I was growing up, always took me and my older brothers back to the homeland. We would hunt, fish, camp in areas of Monterey County and, and San Luis Obispo County uh, that are public lands that are still recognizable by our ancestors 8,000 years ago. They haven't been too damaged yet by modernization. Uh, unlike places like Monterey and Salinas, or especially San Jose, where I live now, which is pretty much paved over, um, those places, the, the ancestors would recognize it. And um, there is a way in that setting where you can reconnect and reawaken. And so that's how I came to be over many years of going there with my father and just soaking it in and letting it soak into me. Um, that I reestablish that that uh, umbilical cord to my homelands. Um, that makes me think about the conversation we had last time. You, I would love to hear more about the your creation story and your culture around the way that the earth, how you belong to the earth and it, to you, that sort of that dynamic that you have. Yeah. Well, I, I learned many years ago our creation story. Um, and I got it through anthropological books. So it was probably very long and detailed and emotional. And, and we got the uh, Selenin to Spanish to English version of it in, in, a, in a truncated form. Um, but I think the essence is still there that we can derive from. And for the Selenin people, um, the world came to be the way we see it now after a flood which is very common in a lot of the California origin stories. A lot of them talk about a flood and the world was reformed and remade similar to what we see it now after that flood. And in our case, the, the place that that happened is a place that we still know of. We call it Stayokale. The Spaniards came and renamed it Santa Lucia. Later on, it was renamed the S word, which we do not use, but it was named after the leader of the mission system. Um, and, and, but it for 10,000 years, it was known as Statyokale. And it's in Los Padres National Forest. It's the highest mountain there. And it's stuck up above the waters when the flood came. And the remaining first people who survived the flood that we use English names like Eagle and, and uh, Kingfisher to describe those people. And the, the story talks about how they worked their powers that were given to them by creator to form the world before the flood. They had to reform it and restore it 
after the flood. And they used those powers. And then after the world was restored and the waters were receded, they proceeded to fulfill a prophecy given to them by creator that there was going to be two footers and the two footers are us. And what's powerful about that story. And again, that's a common element in a lot of the stories of California that I've learned in my, uh, one of my most important influential mentor elders, Dr. Daryl Bay Wilson, um, uh, Itam Is and Ati, um, other people who know them as Pitt River. Um, he said that most of the stories uh, that he knows of, that he learned, talk about people being the last, the two-footers, humans being the last. And when you, if you've ever been in a family, and I'm the youngest of three brothers, by the time I came along, my parents kind of knew about how to do parenting. And we had a house to live in. And, you know, we were poor, but I didn't know that because it was a good life. And, and they provided for us and we had food and I had a yard to play in. And I had brother, bigger brothers to annoy me, but also take care of me. And life was good because the family was set up and I came into it blessed because it was set up for me. And that's what the stories tell us. As humans, the world was a beautiful place. And those first people, the ones that we, you know, eagle, bear, deer, coyote, kingfisher, all of those people that were here before us, they in turn taught us those things that they learned about how to take care of the world. And all we had to do is just take care of it. It was already kind of like a done deal. Just keep going. So that's where we, you know, got our original instructions and learned that we were stewards and caretakers of the world. And that was our repayment to creator and creation for giving us this gift of life in this beautiful world. And that's what, how we were raised. That's one of the prime tenets of our, of our native cultures is gratitude and humility for this gift. We didn't come along with that idea that it was owed to us and promised to us and, and everything. It, 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 it wasn't uh, something that we had to have. It was something that was given to us that we could then should be grateful for. And when you're grateful for something, you treat it with respect and knowing it's a gift that we don't own, but that we pass along. Flag was passed to the first people from creator. Then the first people passed it to us and we pass it to to our descendants. What's coming up for me as you're speaking, and we use this this term last time, the sacred obligation to the land, right? This this gratitude, this reciprocity. We've come so far from that as a human species. Yeah. yeah. So I, as you're speaking, like, you know, we came into the world, we, the, the two-footers, we're having this opportunity to come into a home that's already built yeah. and look at the things that we're doing to our mother, to our planet. We've come... We've strayed so far away from the original instructions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that is part of our trauma is that, um, you know, we, that responsibility, that secret obligation, that secret commitment was taken from us. And and it's just like you know we're we're in this period of time in our society we're looking at individuals and family units that. And, and people are now starting after all these generations to speak to those traumas they grow up as children, right? That they experienced. And we now have to raise it to the next level and talk about it as, as, as in communities and society in general has gone through trauma that it's not facing. And when you, we know about children, right? We know about, you know, people that have faced trauma. First, it turns inward. They blame themselves. And I think that's part of Native people's, you know, burden is that we won't have this obligation. We feel we have to, but we can't, you know, we don't have the tools. We don't have capabilities. We have been so traumatized. If you, you know, study the history if, and if they allow you to study the history, wherever you're at, you realize that, you know, anywhere from 80 to 90 to 95% of the overall population of California was eradicated in a little over 100 years after being here for over 10 to 15,000 years. And all of a sudden, 
in just a short couple of generations, most of them are gone. And in some communities, it's 98%. In the case of the Ramatush, only a handful survived to the earliest part of the 20th century. And, and according to the research that we've done, our, our, our tribal chair and executive director, John Cordero, uh, has done extensive research, and we only can find one lineage through one person that has survived. It's expressed through the four family groups that form the Ramatush people today, one person. Other people have similar, where there's just a handful of people that survived uh, for all kinds of reasons. How, how, would, a people re how would people react when, when you have a family, you know, you lose, you know, seven people in a car crash and you're the only one left. Well, Those that are brings the up, That brings up this idea of survival's guilt for me. That's yeah. the, the sort of the thing I'm thinking of. But I'm also thinking of something else. You keep talking about like, you've had to discover your culture through these like anthropological texts. And I'm thinking, oh, that makes me mad. Like I have to learn about myself. You said that it went from Salinan to Spanish to English and it's gotten translated so many times. What's that like for you to have to look to someone else to learn something about yourself? It started out very well. It started out in 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 somewhere ignorance as almost a shock and a surprise because, like you know, when when I was raised up, you know, I was raised up with a little bit of knowledge who I came, who I was, where I came from. We knew our village, uh, Tukutnut in Carmel Valley, uh, Lima Tom, and other ones in the Salinan homeland. So you had some of this basic knowledge. And, and I had a view of the landscape that kind of like kept me going. But, you know, particular knowledge, cultural knowledge was very, very scarce. And then all of a sudden we find out, you know, after being told by outsiders and even that we internalize that it's, it's gone, then we find out, well, it's not gone. It's hidden. It's asleep. And, and people, especially, uh, I, I give so much respect to my cousin, uh, Linda Yamani, who's a, uh, and she may be lessening tonight, um, who started out in the late 80s, I believe, or early 80s, actually, maybe in the late 70s, to sort of, like, she kind of, doing through genealogy, she came across this other information, this culture information, started putting it together, learned how to basket weave. We haven't basket weave probably in 150 or more years. And she proved that not only is it still there, you can revive it, and you can bring it back to life and you can bring it back to life in yourself and that was a really inspirational thing um but it took my father's passing in 1990 to sort of like shake me out of my complacency and really dive into it and um and i was just very lucky uh starting out as a sort of administrator and on the reconstituted tribal council of the early 1990s in on my dad's side slinna nation and i happened to by chance meet up with culture bearers who spoke the language who knew song and ceremony not from selenian country but from other communities and again i realized it's there it's just a matter of finding it and it's been a long journey and then you dive into it and you read have to read it in english but you real you develop the skill to how to unfilter the filtering that happened and and it's a very complicated thing. It's not just simply sitting down under a tree with a book and thinking it up. It doesn't work quite that simply. It's a very long process that I still feel like I'm a student of in, in the middle of after th almost 30 years. Um, but it's possible. And, and with the help of a lot of people within our community and outside of it, um, I... I feel some joy that we haven't lost it all and that it's still there. Right. What I'm thinking of is the sort of internal process you had to go to that you said was catapulted by your father's death. Mm -hmm. The sort of grieving that had to happen inside for then you to connect to the outside, but it had to happen inside first, right? Yes. It, all, it always starts. Yeah. And it's like this rereading of the text. It's like you're reading it and you're filtering it. Like that's so much work. That's so much grief. I'm thinking rage. Like how do you, how did you work through all of that? Like, what was that? Like who supported you in that? We had a core group of people that we did it together. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a community. It started out 15,000 years as a community and it's, you know, that's the way to go about it. You have to form a community. I mean, my cousin Linda did it mostly by herself. 
And, and it's amazing to me, but she had people from the outside. She was one of the founders of the California Indian Basketball Weaver Association. So that part of it, and through that, because our, the culture bearers that I've met in Indian country, um, and I'm sure you know, others like Linda would agree, they don't just do baskets. They don't just you know, tell stories. That's just one aspect of it, but you know, they, they have to bring it all together, right? As a basket weaver, you learn, you, gotta, you can't just learn the technical aspects and the mechanical aspects of basket weaving. It's a whole cultural process that includes you know, religious and spiritual values, cultural values, um, ecological values, because you tend the land. You don't, you, know, you don't go down to Kmart and, and buy this material. You cultivate it. And you don't just cultivate it once. You don't just wander around, in the old days at least, and, and find a hidden tr treasure trove of plants that you just pluck up and now here's a basket. You find a place. You talk to that place. You ask permission from that place. If it gives permission, you cultivate that place. And in a couple of years, perhaps it's ready to give you, with permission, the things you need to do the cultural things like basket weaving, or in the case of like elderberry, this elderberry stick I used as a clapper stick to do the song. You know, you cultivate that elderberry bush until you get the branch that you want that's going to form that special elderberry stick. So it's this building of a relationship with a place, not just the culture, but with the place. And it's a long process and that's part of the healing you know you know i said earlier you don't sit out under a tree and just let the spirit waft in and enrich you that happens but that's not all to it but that's an important part of it and it's part of the healing and the the medicine you get that keeps you from that rage but you have to keep working it it's not just the one and done it's a constant process which includes doing ceremony finding those ceremonies and redoing those ceremonies on a regular basis. And that's how you channel those feelings, good and bad, into their proper place in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. We're thinking on multiple levels, sort of the, what does the individual have to do? And then how does that individual have to also do it within the community? So as you know, I'm a therapist working in community mental health. People are always like, well, what's the community piece of this work? It's like, when you leave the clinic, the world that you're going out to is a violent, scary, cruel world. So how do you build these communities of reciprocity? People are holding each other accountable, loving each other and going through this process. It's not just grief and joy. It's all of these things, right? Yeah. And I think people do have this fantasy of like the native elder that sits under the tree, right? And soaks up all the tree's knowledge. And you're like, of course not. This is like real <laughs> life, like real stuff, right? So all of this, I'm thinking about the idea of native sovereignty. So how does all of this cultural erasure, displacement, um, you know, we're talking about like historical intergenerational pain. How does all, all of that tie into native sovereignty? What would it actually mean to you to be free? And not necessarily sovereign because <laughs> uh, it's different. Um, well, I'll start out by saying what Dr. Babe taught me early on. And he, and, and he said it jokingly, as he often did. But a lot of also intensity and, and intent to it, um, hard won knowledge perhaps uh, through experience. And, and he told me one time, um, nobody understands sovereignty, especially Indians. <laughs> and it took me a while, and I kind of like shocked. I laughed, but I also was shocked when he said that. But I think part of what he was saying, and what we had our conversation last week, is is the biggest hurdle we have as Native people today is English, because English is a relatively almost baby talk language, very young, very crude language. And if you talk linguist, and I've done a little bit of linguistic work in Salinan, um, you know, one Salinan word has to be explained in an entire paragraph or page of English to encompass all the concepts. And of course, if you talk to culture bearers and, and language people in Indian country, they'll tell you there's some words that just don't translate, right? And that's probably true of back. Sovereignty is one of those tricky, you know, words because um, it has a particular meaning reinforced by the dictionary 
if you look it up in Funky Wagnall's dictionary or Merriam-Webster, you'll see a certain mean to it. Um, just recently here in the Bay Area, uh, Burlingame, um, they recently had a national conference called the Self Tribal Self-Governance Conference. Mostly recognized tribes, and there's hardly any recognized tribes in, in the, there's none in the Bay Area. You have to go a little bit beyond the Bay Area to, to get into recognized tribes like Grayton or Yochihi or some of the other ones. But in the Bay Area itself, Lonely tribes, there's no recognized tribes. Here we have this conclave and meeting, a week-long you know, conference of recognized tribes from across the country. And, and a lot of what they talked about was in the context of what the American English legal system allows them to do. And so self-governance is sort of what they say is sovereignty, which means in this context, what our rights are, what we are allowed to do, what we have the right to do, uh, and basically govern our own lives and community. And I think what Dr. Babe was trying to tell me was that that's probably the wrong thing if you're on a culture journey to think in those ways. And after a long time with other culture bearers help, I realized that we don't think about, because rights is almost an individual thing. You know, you talk about my rights, right? And it focuses on the individual and it may apply to a community, to society, but as individuals, right? Um, we still talk about, you know, if you say like we have the right to vote and our entire country supposedly has the right to vote, but we're still thinking of an individual going, going into a voting booth with curtains around them and marking a ballot. It's still focused on the individual. And that's not the way the, the elders taught me. They talked about it in a much more, you know, there's not that many expressions for I. It's about we, always about we, us, our community. And sovereignty is not about I, what I have the right to do. It's about what we have the obligation and commitment and sacred duty to do to give back to our creator and creation, the gift that's given to us. That's really the focus of sovereignty in a cultural sense. And that's, that, that's still a lesson I learn almost every day. And that changes everything when you think in that way. That's super deep. I'm just like, yes. Um, it, I mean, it completely flips this idea on its head. So to go back to the linguistics, it's not like, it's not about me. How can I get free? But how can my, how can my people? And the way that I'm hearing you talk about your people, it's like, the, it's also the land, right? The deer, the elderberry, the, the hawk, the eagle. How can we all be in right relation with each other? And so it's, so one, the one aspect that, and you kind of touched on it there, it, it, it comes in, in steps, it comes in waves, this knowledge, it comes in layers. And in fact, I was talking to Daryl one time and uh, Dr. Babe, and, and I realized as he was going through the things that he went through and elders before him that passed along the knowledge, and he told me all the time, he's like, I didn't think this up, you know, I'm sharing with you the way it was shared with me. I'm passing it along from, you know, the original instructions. And you add your own little piece sometimes, but most of it is knowledge that's been passed along. You don't own it. It's a gift that keeps on giving and you use it. And then you pass it along after you've cared for it. And one of the things I realized, it's like an onion. And if you've, you know, if you've heard onions, you know, dinner, you realize that, it's not in nice little neat layers. And as you go deeper, you, you think you get to the core and then there's another layer. And sometimes you peel off that layer and sometimes you cry. And sometimes those, mm -hmm. those are tears of joy and sometimes they're not. They're pain, they're suffering, uh, depending on what you're looking at. Um, and one of the things I learned as I got deeper into that onion, and I have no idea how close to the core I am, probably not that close but it was pretty deep. And not only is the, you know, the animals are alive in a way that's the same as us. Our stories tell us we're no different. Remember, they're, you know, coyote and eagle and the other first people brought us into the world. 
So they're not lesser than us. They're at least our equals and they're honored elders in our view. Um, so they have that value that's, you know, we're no better than them, certainly not higher than them in, in our in traditional value system. And then the earth itself, we, you know, gave birth to us, right? You know, like, like I said, the elderberry that made us in our origin story that was, that was put together by coyote and the first people led by eagle danced around it all night mm -hmm. until the spirit came into it and enlivened that and we became humans but the physical part was elderberry that grew at the base of our sacred mountain so we're made of the land not just from the land or on the land but of the land and so that's our mother and we say that almost like shay but we really come to really i feel really it's alive it's it's a living thing just like we are and then I realized, you know, after being taught by other elders, and one particular one I like to mention is uh, he passed away not too long ago, Frank LaPena. He helped us bring back one of our first uh, traditional ceremonies about 25 years ago in the mid-90s. And he said something that was really powerful. And, it, 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 and the more I think about it, it just excites me and makes me afraid, too, because it's an, an incredible responsibility. He said about our, our traditions that we had stopped and, were, and we were prevented by law and, and oppression from doing for generations, 150, 200 years in some cases. But he said for a long time, we didn't do the ceremonies, but they continued nonetheless. And now you've brought them back and you're giving them form. And, I, and, it, and just like elders do when they teach you this stuff, they kind of drive you crazy because you're doing this, huh? What? You know, that's that's how it comes out in like Instagram now. They're like, what? But what it told me is that in mod the modern world, we think of these things like this elderberry, you know, branch, this elderberry stick, clapper stick, as we still think of it as a physical thing that's a tool, right? Uh -huh. It's so much more than that. It's alive. And the song that I sing with it is also alive. The ceremonies are alive. They are actual entities that exist on their own. And we join with them. So that's, that's what I learned early on. We don't own ceremonies. We take care of them. We administer them. We steward them. We protect them. We teach them. But not because they're tools we can pass along like a, you know, old rifle to, or a knife or something to our kids. They're living beings that we share with the next generation. They pass along because they outlive us, hopefully, and they go on to the next generation and enliven in their lives and share themselves in the next generation. That's, a, that's probably the deepest lesson, lesson I've ever learned, and I'm still learning it, that these ceremonies, these songs, these stories, these cultural concepts are alive. That's the way I've been taught. And when I've talked to elders, you know, it's hard to talk about that in English terms because English just is too crude of a language to encompass that concept. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're speaking, I'm thinking about a lot of things. <clears throat> when you're talking about how everything is alive, it's like what you're talking about is so contrary to capitalism. Here's an object that I can purchase that I can use for my own benefit. And so I'm a sort of amateur herbalist, right? And in a lot of herbalist circles, it's like, I just want to buy all these plants so I can make things. And it's mine instead of seeing the plant as like a friend that we're co-creating a relationship with. And so I think what's, so I'm, I'm sitting with what you're saying and I'm feeling very moved by it. And I'm like, this is so anti-everything <laughs> that I have learned growing up in this country where it's like everything is an object, including other people that can be used for our benefits. And of course, the native experience the last 250 years is exactly that here in California and over 500 years on this continent. That's we were objects to be used. Mm -hmm. We were declared to be subhuman. So that eradicated any obligations or even rights that we had so that they came in take our land and do whatever they wanted to us. And that's what they've been, has been happening for the last 500 years 
And by doing that and forging a methodology to do that, right? So we talk about here in coastal California, the mission system, which is what impacted all of my lineages the most. It, it took away our, our, our life, both the physical life, but also our cultural life. And for Native people, there isn't that much difference. When we talk about genocide, you know, people make those distinctions, physical genocide, cultural genocide. And it's like, it's genocide to us. If you take away our ceremonies, we're not the people anymore, right? So the mission system was designed exactly to do that. That later translated into the, um, the residential system that where you know, kill the Indian to save the man. And by taking our culture away, you take away the, the cohesive glue of the community that keep, binds us together as a unit, as a, as a community, makes us individual individuals that can be easily manipulated like a nail, like a wrench, like a tool, any tool. And then you can use and abuse them wherever you want. And that's what we've been experienced, you know, the last, you know, how many generations of 250 years of this oppression, those of us that survived. And you don't go through that, those who did survive and their descendants without huge effect um, that we still struggle with today. So that's part of this process that you alluded to earlier of how do you do this without the rage? And some of us don't. Some of us have that rage and they express that rage on each other, on outsiders and the newcomers and the colonizers and on ourselves. There's you know, so much self-abuse in terms of drug abuse and other kinds of abuses we do to ourselves. Mental health is a huge problem in native country. And the only thing that really works because we know people that have gone through the American system of mental health and it doesn't work for us the same way. Because we have that spiritual memory still within us, whether we consciously remember or not. And, it, and your methodologies of modern psychology won't penetrate that. It won't go there. And so we have to find another way. And you know, lots of elders say there's, there, there is a way. It's called ceremony. It's called ritual. It's called going back and and not just practicing your culture, although you always practice it, but you breathe it in. You live that culture as best as you can. Well, I was just thinking about, like you're talking about the mental health issue in like native communities. And I feel like that was made by design, right? We're gonna put these people on a certain area. We're gonna deprive them of all of the, of the land that they use to grow food. We're gonna give them the most arid, the most the land that's already completely destroyed. And then we're going to have liquor stores there. We're going to have really bad food. Of course, you're going to create all these situations, right? And then we're going to give them a sort of a colonized version of healing that doesn't make any sense to solve a problem that this other entity created. So it's an opposition. It's almost like a perpetual war. That's what's happening in my head. I'm just thinking it's just it's like, yes. that's not making sense. And it is a psychological war because what, what I, you know, we know this nowadays with uh, victims of abuse uh, on the individual level. One of the aspects mm -hmm. is you convince the victim it's their fault. Right. And that's what's happened to our community. You know, that's what happens now. It's like well, a lot of times we talk about when we talk about the fact that the history is not being taught. And like, I, you know, I've been working on this aspect. I'm not an educator per se, but I know a lot of educators. And we've formed, you know, ally, allyships and coalitions and, and efforts to correct the curriculum on many levels. And we're just barely scratching the surface still because a lot of people still grew up in a system that said we're extinct. And so why worry about it? But now when you bring up, no, not, we're not extinct. We're standing right in front of you. And we want to tell you our story. And our story isn't necessarily a Mickey Mouse Disneyland fairy tale with a happy ending. And they don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, you know, and then part of the denial process is, well, I didn't do it. Maybe you did it. Maybe, and maybe it's your fault because you're not undoing it. You know, because you have all these tools, you know, we live in a modern world, you drive a car, you have computers, whatever. How come you're not better? How come you don't get over it? I actually got told that you need to get over it. You don't get over the fact that hundreds of thousands of your relatives in California alone were eradicated by violent means. 
with only a handful left, you don't just get over it. Ask people who have been to war, you know, the silent generation of my father's people. He fought in World War II. They came back and barely talked about it. But they went through tragedy. My dad was shot out of the air in a in a plane and had to parachute parachute in. They lost lives. He saw brutality on the war level. That's a modern version. Well, now imagine it at a higher level, right? Imagine the people right now we're going, we just supposedly are over a pandemic. What a laugh. I just got over COVID myself last week. And I know the suffering. I know people who died and crossed over. And you can't tell those people to get over it. That's just not going to work. But there's no mechanism in our society that really addresses that. It's just, you know, uh, you know, drops in, in an ocean of, of medicine. Mm -hmm. Just going to take a moment to just breathe in everything that you're saying. It's making me think of Greg, something that we spoke about last week. So you have, you know, these well-intentioned people that are like, oh my God, but I'm listening to you. I hear you. What can I do for you? And then the, the and then enters the land back in the chat, right? I want to give you this thing. And I know you have a really interesting critique of that that I think our listeners would love to hear. And the other, so this is sort of like a comment. The other question is like, what can I do? I mean, I hear you. Like, I, I want to sit with the pain. I want to move through it with you. I want to be your ally. I want to be in this fight with you. Because everyone wants to know, like, how can I help? But and and and, and but maybe to you, you're like, well, well, so yeah. A little, it's a little messy, but that's sort of the idea. But, and, and sort of the story of what we're going through, both as Native people and, and as general society, those that are in denial and those that want allyship and want to, to help. And I think the part of the undoing of it is, unfortunately, you do have to start at the individual level because you have to become aware enough and healed enough to at least start the process of building those relationships again, right? And that's what I had to do. I mean, I, you know, I have cousins and and friends in you know the Sloan and Ohlone community, and over the years I've built you know friendships and and personal relationships with people in other communities that are culture bearers, knowledge bearers, and and just awesome, incredible people that have helped me on my journey. But to get to a point where I could understand what they're telling me, I could listen, I could hear it, it goes through my ear, gets in my brain, I might even remember it. But to understand it, to know it, is a different level of, of consumption, if you want to put it that way. And that takes longer. And to do that, you have to have a healthy relationship with that person, with other people, and with yourself. So it does start at some level working on yourself. And that's what I tell people when she says, what can I do? Well, you got to start with yourself. And that is something that I learned from native culture. When, when we have, let's say a relationship issue, whether it's a marriage, family, another tribal person in, in your community, another community. We were, I, I learned years ago that one of the things you go through is you stop and you think you kind of check yourself. What did I do? Was there something I did bad or good or indifferent or something that contributed to this? You do look in the mirror. That's not something American society wants to do. It avoids it almost at all costs, looking in the mirror. But that's how what I, elders talk to me. It's like, you got to look at your own stuff first, because control is an illusion, except maybe over you, and even that's kind of iffy, but certainly not over anything else in the universe. You might influence it, you can't control it, you can't make it do something there has to be some level of compliance and so what even if it's enforced and 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 it, through brutality there's still compliance and that's the victimization part that that you have to work through it's like you know what about my ancestors how come they didn't take up a bow and arrow a knife and fight back some did um uh, and and how come we can't fight back now? Well, we some of us are in a in in a more humane and more positive way that's gonna enhance our thrivance in the future. 
but it's still a struggle. It starts with the individual that uh, in a way that you heal enough, enough, just enough to build these relationships. And as you start growing these relationships, you know, just like a, a, the basket weavers and other people taking care of the land, you start cultivating and healing that land and you get to a point where it starts getting the hang of it on its own. You build a relationship within a community and that's what I've done on my Salinan side and I'm still in the process on my Ohlone side of building a garden, a community of relationships and then it re you get reinforced because I don't have all the answers but that person over there might have it. They share it with me. I share it back. Now it gets amplified. That's the way you build up, just like a building. You start at the ground level and you work your way up. And you make sure the foundation is solid as you possibly can. You make sure the framework is as solid as it can. You don't start off with you know putting furniture and lamps in a bare bones building. You start off with the mechanics of the framework. And in a sense, we have to do what we did at the beginning of the world when we came in as elderberry sticks. And, and sort of redo that, except the knowledge is there and we just have to reawaken it. So I want to add something from a psychological perspective, a Western colonial psychological perspective. So when I talk to my students, so some of my students just started their first weekend in graduate school last week. And I told them, you can take all the classes, get A's in every class, read all the texts, but that does not make you a good therapist. <laughs> What makes you a good therapist is when you're talking about, you go inside, this is the way I said, you go inside and you clean up shop because in order to really hear someone, you have to have space inside of you to listen and hear, right? And I think so many of us, like we want to help the native cause or we want to you know, help the Palestinian cause or the black cause, right? There's all these causes that we're so passionate about, the immigrant cause, right? The trans cause, um, but we're so, uh, everything is just so full of stuff and icky stuff that we don't actually have the ability to create space to hear the suffering of the other because to actually hear what you're saying, Greg, is very painful. Yes. Right? And I have to open myself to that pain. And a lot of people can't because they're dealing with so much of their own SHIT, right? So it's like, and so actually this makes me think of what we spoke about last week, which I thought was so interesting. We're talking about this sort of way that all of these institutions, at least in California, are always talking about um, land acknowledgements before an opening. And it's become a sort of rote routine. And you had some really interesting things to say about that. Yeah. And, and I had to be schooled at it too, because I think, you no, know, uh, I didn't, you know, it, it started about four years ago, maybe a little more. And, and they started rolling in. And then, of course, when the social justice movement came up, that was one of the first effects. It, it amplified those requests like 10 times. And and then the pandemic also was part of it because when everything closed down, everybody was home. There was a pause of about three weeks. And then all of a sudden they realized, hey, these computers can do stuff, right? You can get online and do all this stuff remotely. You don't have to travel. You don't have to park. You don't have to pay, you know, a parking lot fee outrageous in San Francisco. Um, you can just do this online. And so things can happen quicker. And so we were getting 20 a week at one point, right? Amongst all the other emails we get. You know, do a landing policy. And then for, what, for a very short time, I was sort of writing. We already had a standard framework, and I would just customize it and send it off. And I was contributing to that, you know, like, because I was thinking of me. I, I need, need to get this out of my inbox, right? And Jonathan was the one to say, no, you're doing this wrong. First of all, you should be doing this work uh, because you don't have time. I'm, you know, if you have time for that, I need to, you to do other stuff for me. But the other part was they need to do the work. And he was pushing back. And so one of the first things we did that was really successful, um, there are probably some of them are probably out in the audience tonight, is the Exploratorium. They spent a long time because they were shut down for a while. And we have a great relationship and multiple projects with the Exploratorium. And they spent a considerable amount of time during the pandemic shutdown internally talking about that and came up with this their, on their own, this great landing acknowledgement, which you can see on their website. And when they finally opened, which was, I think, July 31st or July 1st of 2021, that last year, uh, they had a grand reopening 
And they had us come in the morning and we opened it up and we started with a land acknowledgement ceremony. And they had it on a fabric scroll on a rolling cart. Um, I won't tell you that story. It's too long, but, but that's what they have right now. We're working on something more substantial, but you know, it was, it, it felt, it was heartfelt and it felt true. And they followed it up since then with ongoing discussions, collaborations and relationship building. That's what you need to do with a land acknowledgement, right? Um, because then it does become remote, you know, you know rote and automatic and kind of like by the numbers. Um, and that's going to happen too, but we just focus on the ones that have taken it to heart, put some thought into it, and then, okay, what are we going to do? I mean, uh, I haven't asked Jonathan lately, but I know the San Francisco Ballet asked about a land acknowledgement. My first thought was, what is the ballet going to do with the landing other than saying, you know, the building we're dancing in is on, you know, Yalamu Ramatush territory. But we wanted them to go beyond that. If you're a service organization, what does that mean in terms of what you do for the community? You know, whether you're the, you know, um, Human Rights Commission of the San Francisco government, the Board of Supervisors themselves, both of which have done a land acknowledgement. The Board of Supervisors, you know, one of the first and probably the biggest in the country to do it. Um, many commissions, government agencies have done it, and now it's gone into the org many organizations. Um, you mentioned one right at the beginning of our talk tonight. You, you know, CIS has a land acknowledgement. Um, but what does that not just make a statement about where you're classroom is but what does that do within the classroom context what does it mean to be on native land that where people were removed in some in most cases violent ways what does that do to the land itself what does that leave in the land in the soil itself and how does that then permeate the the building that's on that land I mean, those are things that as a native person, when we build something like a Thule house, a roundhouse, we think those things. We consecrate the land and we continue consecrating that land and sanctifying it to make sure it does good things. And, and in a very crude way, land acknowledgements should do that and in some cases do and need to do it more often. And and at least my experience, those who continue that relationship, um, it, it doesn't become rote, but percentage-wise, it's probably, you know, less. Of course, the other part is the fact that we were getting 20 a week at some point is, is a burden on us. It's a happy burden. It's one we asked for, but we certainly didn't expect 20. When, when, we, when we didn't even give two or three a year more than five years ago, and then you get 20 a week, you know, and and some of us have other employment to put food on the table. I work in Silicon Valley, you know, uh, in a tech job, 40 hours, 50 hours a week, and do this as a sideline, if you want to put it that way, an extracurricular, and get all these requests for my time. I would do it 80 hours a week, but, you know, I, I need to put food on the table and support my family. So there's a logistical administrative burden and a real social burden to go with it so that it's always a package deal when you deal with 80 people you can't just say can i have a land acknowledgement it's a it's it's there's there's a much bigger universe behind it that that goes with it and and that needs to be kind of thought about when you approach a native community and and what's the impact when we first approach that plot of land we, we want to cultivate for food for basket material whatever it happens to be we in a positive sense are thinking of the consequences of it. how do we avoid negative consequences how do we put positive consequences and outcomes into the work we do in the land and that's what we do with organizations too you know we don't want to just barge in the door it's like how can we form a relationship that makes what you do better and makes what we do better that's the way it's supposed to work I think this thing you're talking about, about this burden, right? People think, oh, we're doing land acknowledgement. Let's reach out to a native person and ask them. But they don't think like, well, what does this person actually have going on? Like, it's not like Greg is devoted, you know, 
100 hours of the day or whatever, 24 hours to this cause. Obviously, you're living and breathing it constantly because it's your being, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think it's really important to think about. Um, and then something you mentioned last time that I wonder if you might be able to speak to a little bit more is something that really stuck with me. You said a land acknowledgement is sort of like a prayer to the space that you're in, but it's also a type of grief, right? It's the, when you're acknowledging the violence that was done to a people and to a place, there's something, I mean, it's really very intense about that, right? And a lot of times it's like, like at the ballet, land acknowledgement, okay, now let's dance, right? It just seems like a, a, a your word, crude, like a crude transition, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if you believe, well, even if you don't believe it, if you believe as the land is just a physical object, but it has a memory. And of course, from my viewpoint now, I understand it's a living being. And of course, it could be traumatized too, as we see with climate change, but it's a living being that could be traumatized in, in a, a spiritual way. And that doesn't get contained in a tight little ball that, and doesn't get out. If you put something there, it's going to permeate that thing you put there. Whatever it is, in, in, in the case of a building, a place of learning, on the October 1st, I'm going to be involved with other people, lots of other people that did it, started a, uh, an event several years ago and have included us now. It's, it's around Mission Dolores, you know, uh, by a community uh, that's going to do dance and song and, and, and other cultural expressions. But part of it is acknowledge what happened there. There's thousands of people buried in that soil that's under concrete and asphalt and building. And you have to acknowledge that because it's there. Um, it, it, it reveals itself if you don't anyway. Um, and so a land acknowledgement helps you in that process, I think. It's you acknowledge, you know, the positive aspects, hopefully growing in the out in the acknowledgement so greg we have about four more minutes so <laughs> i wanted to just all right um i wanted to just give you the last few minutes to make any sort of closing remark maybe there's something yeah. you, if, how could you sum up all the things that we talked about today one of the things we talked about is the you know i mean the ongoing process of building this relationship not on an individual level but between communities native communities and they're all separate autonomous now even though we call ourselves by names that have been given to us from outsiders, like Ramatush, that that's not a name we called ourselves. That's actually another cultural expression. And there was no Ohlone before, there was no Ramatush before, but that's a survival technique we have adopted somewhat from the outside world that allows us to function in the current world. And we use that as a tool in a sense, contrary to what we just talked about, but we're forced to in a sense and so we we but we want to talk about that aspect you know ramatush is not how we called ourselves ramatush association that try is trying to take care of this combined homeland that stretches from the tip of the san francisco peninsula all the way down monterey uh, san mateo county down towards mountain view area that's what we consider our ramatush homeland made up of many, many villages that were autonomous in the pre-contact time, but now exist in this survival mode of the Ramatush Ohlone community. And in my opinion, personal opinion, that's how a lot of communities have survived today. They're, they're, in, you know, they're not existing in their ex, ex, original village complexity and existence anymore. They're in survival mode, the few that are left, so to speak. When you do something like land back, which was the, the next step beyond land acknowledgement, how can you give land back in, in this context when really it doesn't happen? Like, you know, uh, in a lot of cases, and that just happened to my awesome relative, Karina Gould, across the, across the bay. You, you probably just read something recently where the city of Oakland gave them land back. Right. Um, my understanding of, of, of it, though, on a legal level is technically they still have to own it. What they have is a management agreement, a legal agreement that gives them 
cultural easements and management authority over the land. I know at the state level, I was just talking with a state parks person last week that said the state, you know, somebody mentioned state in the state, especially state parks, has all this land just laying there doing nothing. Why don't they give it back? Well, they're legally prevented from. They can't just hand it back. They can't turn over the deed. They can do management agreements like cultural easements. They can form consortiums and, and coalitions and collaboration projects. On our side, though, how can you give back your mother, right? You, we don't own the land, even though we sometimes use that term and we say it's our land, but not in the sense that we ever owned it, but in the sense that we, it's our land is our mother, right? You don't own your mother. Try telling that to your mom next time you see her. Like, oh, mom, I own you. Oh, yeah. So I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. That's probably what she'll say. And, you know, so you don't own it in that sense. We are obligated to it. We have this in undying, indestructible relationship. If we survived as community and people from the Holocaust and genocide, I should use the word genocide for California, and it still have this bond with the land and this commitment that we recognize, you know, it, it, that means to me it's never going to die. And we have to acknowledge that. And society has to acknowledge that. Well, what do you do with that? Well, there have been instances, uh, and one in particular, where we've been given land back. And we had to turn it down in the end of it. Because it was just, we understood from our association's uh, intent to do work in our land, it was too big of a burden for too small of a land. We just, it, it would have overwhelmed us. Um, it, it, it's like being a doctor in a hospital and you're the only doctor in the middle of a disaster, right? You, there's no way you can heal everybody. You have to make really hard decisions. And, and this was a hard decision. Yeah, if you want to give it all back, all several million years back, sure, I'll take it. But what is that going to do to us? We've had other instances, you know, I'm thinking of the, the Uyghur people who took their sacred island back. But not only was it came with a history of a, of a, of a massacre that happened during a ceremony, but it also came with a modern trauma of, of pollution that they have to take care of now too. Of course, they're going to take it back. And somehow, because it's so important to their community, I, I certainly don't blame them. I, I would have taken it back also in that instance. But there's huge consequences to it. When you give something back, when you share something with the Native community, when you give something to the community, when you ask something of them, it comes with consequences and burdens that you probably you know, should consider along with it. And, and that's always... Something because we're starting at such a low. Remember, we were almost wiped out, and then later on, we were banned from doing our culture. We were it, we only got the Religious Freedom Act was only signed in 1978, not 1778, 1878. It's not part of the Constitution. It had to be legally given back to us in 1978, and we're still fighting for it. So this is an ongoing burden process that we're still having to work out as a society. And as a native community. Greg, thank you so much. I mean, the words that I'm just I'm gonna to use to wrap up this conversation is like complexity, community, ongoing. Um yeah, I think I'll leave it at those three. This is what keeps me up at night and I can only get five hours of sleep. Well, Greg, we are going to end here. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So I wanted to wish you a good evening. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Both last week, our private conversation and tonight. Um, I'm, I'm sure that my email box is going to start filling in. Greg, what the hell are you doing over there? <laughs> what did you just say? Um, hopefully, I won't get phone calls from elders, though. That's the one I fear. <laughs> hopefully, I didn't step on anything. Well, on our end, it was such a pleasure to be in Thank conversation you. with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. Thank you uh, for honoring my people by asking me to share a little bit. and. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully it's something that might enrich your life and, and 
maybe send it off in just a slightly different step in another direction. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.